Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So it's lovely to be here in uh, Stockholm. Um, can everybody hear me if I speak at this volume? Because if you can't, just come forward so that I save my voice. I th- this is probably okay, do you think? And, uh, and it's so nice to see people that I know, and um, it's so wonderful to uh, arrive in a city and see so many familiar faces, especially since I've never been to the city before. <laughs> um, I've been uh, um, in Copenhagen for a month, and um, uh, now with my family, uh, we're living on a small island for one month, a Kaltinos in uh, Greece, which is a really special, special place. And... Um, so I, I came there. It took me two days to get here. It's very complicated. Um, so um, I feel like I just entered a completely different climate. <laughs> Usually I meditate in the morning and my son comes in and wakes me, my three-year-old comes in and wakes me up and asks me if I'm doing meditation. So the other day he came in and said, Papa, you're doing meditation? And I wasn't sitting. I was lying in bed still. Like, no, I'm doing Mediterranean. <laughs> so that's our new practice. It's Mediterranean practice. Uh, I have no idea uh, what's advertised for tonight, but <laughs> yeah, usually I write, I write the blurbs as vague as possible so that I can speak about whatever is going on in my heart. Um, And so tonight I'm going to speak for about an hour, and then um, I want to do some exercises together um, and uh, then have some time for discussion. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. So let me begin uh, with a story. Uh, This is a story that comes from the Zen tradition um, about a family named the uh, Pong family. And you find stories about them um, throughout uh, the Zen koan literature. And uh, this is a a lesser-known story. And it's partly a lesser-known story because a lot of the stories from um, Asian and Indian traditions that were teaching stories that involved women uh, have only really been uncovered uh, in the last little while um, because of the people who wrote the history. 
Um, and so uh, it's really interesting and I think really important also uh, to be some, you know, to start to unearth some of these stories about uh, women teachers and, and women uh, who were um, monastics and practitioners or, or, or lay teachers also, uh, women who were householders. So this is a story about a really interesting family whose eldest daughter um, uh, is the teacher in this story. Mr. Pong and his daughter were selling bamboo baskets. Coming down off a bridge with his arms full, Mr. Pong stumbled and fell. When his grown-up daughter saw this, she ran over and threw herself down on the ground beside him. What are you doing? cried Mr. Pong. I saw you fall, so I'm helping, she said. It's a good thing no one was looking, said Mr. Pong. So, thank you for coming. <laughs> My flight back is in one hour <laughs> to go practice Mediterranean. <laughs> so, um, let me give you some background to this story. I think that's important because it's going to influence the entirety of our weekend together, which is about a hundred years after the Buddha died. There was a council that met to uh, codify his teachings. And because there were many monastics now living, many more than were around the Buddha during his own lifetime, they had to decide what the rules were going to be. Uh, would they be allowed to handle money, for example? What would the diet be? Um, what would the code of conduct be? And of course, most of the monks who um, met were elderly. And so they had certain agendas. And um, that meeting excluded certain people, of course, also. And then, uh, I'm giving you very quick history, but a century passes, and there's another meeting, which is called the Second Council. And in that council, different kinds of people show up. Uh, people like you and me, uh, householders, uh, merchants, artists, um, all different kinds of people from the city, and not just monastics. Um, but there were monks and nuns there, um, but there were also younger people who had families. And uh, when they met, they had other ideas that they wanted to explore with regard to the Buddha's teaching. And one of the themes that developed was what was called the bodhisattva practice, or what we now call the bodhisattva path, or the bodhisattva vow. Uh, bodhi means uh, to awaken, and sattva is a being. Traditionally, this refers to a being who is awakening. But uh, the way I like to translate the term bodhisattva is not just a being who is practicing to awaken, but a being who is awakening other beings and those beings are awakening that being, right? So it's not just that you're practicing for your own awakening. It's that you're practicing to awaken other people. But not just in a kind of missionary or top-down way. Other people's practice is then waking you up also. Just like my son wakes me up in the morning. Just like the people you're in relationship with just like the natural world we're in relationship with uh, wakes us up all of the time. We wake each other up. 
and this is called bodhisattva practice. The Buddha never taught bodhisattva practice. This was a development of the Buddha's teachings within two centuries after his, his death. So the story that I want to unpack tonight comes out of this view of bodhisattva practice, which is a practice where we're looking into our own hearts, not just to declutter what we find there, but also to declutter our hearts so that we're freer with our energy, with our ability to forgive, with our generosity, so that we can help other people, so that we can serve other people. And then the paradox is, as you serve other people, you put yourself in a position where they can serve you too. We all know this about giving. If you're somebody um, who doesn't know how to give, of course, giving is a really good training. And we're going to talk about that more over the, over the weekend. But there's some people who have a kind of aversive posture where they never advertise to other people that they're in a position to give. They have a posture where they're at a distance not only from themselves, but they maintain a certain distance or um, unhelpful boundaries with other people. And then other people don't get the unconscious. This is all unconscious, right? Other people don't get the message that those people are in a position to give to them. So if you set yourself up in that position, then it's actually not helpful for your community because then you don't give other people the, position, the, 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 the possibility of giving. Does this make sense? It's not just that you lose because you can't receive a gift. It's that you lose because you don't let giving happen within your community. You see? So... 300 years of history, there you go. Mr. Pong and his daughter were selling bamboo baskets. Coming down off a bridge, can you picture it? With his arms full of baskets, Mr. Pong stumbled and fell. When his eldest daughter saw this, she ran up and threw herself to the ground beside him. What are you doing? cried Mr. Pong. I saw you fall. So I'm helping. Well, it's good nobody saw. Imagine falling down and having somebody fall down next to you. I think this is probably the most significant thing any of us can have in our own lives, is to have somebody who's really there for you. I don't know if it's necessarily your lover or your partner or, I don't know. Maybe it's just a friend or uh, a neighbor, or, but somebody who's really for you. They're interested in you and they believe in you. I think we all know how powerful it is when someone actually takes interest in you. Maybe it happened to you for three seconds in school once. <laughs> So to me, this story is not just about having somebody falling down um, next to you, but it's also about what happened to Mr. Pong, which is 
What's it like uh, to fall down, and when you fall down, you're not at odds with yourself? You see, he falls down, and he says, what are you doing? But he doesn't fall down and say to himself, well, what are you doing? He falls down, and he's just a bit embarrassed. So he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and um, that's also a teaching, isn't it? Which is, uh, it's natural to be embarrassed and for your cheeks to turn red and uh, to get all shy about falling down. That's part of falling down. But then um, <clears throat> he has someone there who, uh, who meets him there. I think about this a lot uh, around kids, you know. If you ever meet a kid and um, you go up to them and you're, let's say you're at a party. Has anybody here been at a party lately where there's kids? No, you don't do that here. But anyways, in Greece they do this a lot. So you're at a party and then you go, hi, I'm Michael. Nice to meet you. So if you do this with a kid, they won't talk to you for the rest of the night. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like if they see you, they'll kind of move away. But if, if you see the kid and then you go like this, then you have a new best friend who will stick to your side and protect you. Because actually you're the one who usually needs protecting at parties, you know. So you just find the kid who will protect you. <laughs> but, but the point is, is you have to get down to the level of the kid. Just like when someone falls down and when someone gets sick, we have to get down on their level. But uh, most of us, um, we can only get down to the level of the person who's sick in relationship to our own relationship, to what it's like when we're sick. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like when you fall down, if you only have one strategy of being with yourself when you fall down, then um, you're not going to have that many strategies when someone else falls down. You see this a lot with uh, uh, psychologists who come out of school. Is they go to school and they learn this new uh, fad, which is only evidence-based psychology. Have you heard about this? Like CBT and DBT and all these other American things. And uh, insurance companies love this stuff because you can really test it, you know. But then because I work a lot with clinicians, you, you hear these people who come with that kind of education. And what I mean is an education that doesn't respect the mysterious, doesn't respect the unconscious, doesn't respect the fact that most of the mind we really can't access without uh, mythology and music and dance and um, non-linguistic um, exploration dreams. So they come out of school and they want to be psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and so on. And they feel this incredible gap between their education and the kind of suffering that really walks in the room. Because even though you might have good tools and techniques to use, at the end of the day, there's someone who's suffering that you're sitting with. And there's not much healing that can happen if you haven't been in those realms and been exploring those realms. You know. 
So Ling Zhao, Mr. Peng's daughter, this is what she knows how to do. One detail in the story that I didn't mention is Ling Zhao is a Zen master in her own right. And when she sees her dad fall, she falls down. She sees her dad fall and she falls down. She meets him there. Should we all do that? Okay, ready? And I think we also know that uh, if somebody falls next to you, um, it changes your heart. And I would actually take it further and say that it changes your worldview. It can change your entire worldview. Uh, because you, you trust again that human beings are good. And they'll show up. Another angle of the story, because I want to mention just kind of like a collage of angles on this story, is the way that Ling Zhao moves without hesitation. She doesn't flinch. She just falls down. And in just falling down next to her dad, she demonstrates the kind of compassion that doesn't need a badge. The kind of compassion that doesn't have a lot of me in it. And a lot of times, you know, we don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You get a call in the middle of the night that your friend's in the hospital. Maybe they're actively dying. So you get on your, do you do bicycles here? <laughs> I was just in Copenhagen, so that's my reference point, you know. You get on your bicycle and you go quickly to the hospital and um, you're kind of scared because uh, you don't know what to do when somebody's dying. And so uh, you just show up and then um, you remember this story, falling to the ground. It doesn't mean you literally like show up and fall down <laughs> onto the... But maybe you'll actually get onto the bed. Maybe you'll get into the bed. Or maybe this person's an alcoholic. They've been drinking for the last 30 years. And the nurses won't give them a drink. And they say to you, I just want a drink. So what do you do? You, you get on your bike and you go to the store. And you go get them a drink. And if you're like a yogi who doesn't drink alcohol, you take out a shot glass and you drink with them. And you meet them right at the level. You don't smoke, you have a smoke. Just one smoke. And you meet them at that level. So that's bodhisattva practice. We don't hesitate, we don't flinch. We don't think, what's the right thing to do? Because there isn't a right thing to do. So the thing that excites bodhisattvas more than anything is that they're living a life where they never know what is the right thing to do. 
and that that actually becomes exciting because you don't know what the right thing to do is in the situation and that becomes kind of motivating. Really motivating. And then the best thing about having a heart that is able to try different things is if the thing you do isn't the right thing, then you just try another thing. And this is the best thing to do when you get scared. Is when you feel scared and you're in a position where you don't know what to do, you just try something. You just try something. Anything. You just try something. So this Pong family in Zen literature is quite famous, um, mostly for their simplicity and their modesty. Um, they had a business going where they made bamboo utensils and bamboo baskets that they sold on the market, uh, at the market rather. And uh, there was a son who we don't know anything about. We don't even know his name. So there were two siblings. And um, the family... Um, as they got more serious about practice, started giving all their money away. And then eventually they gave their house away and turned it into a temple that became um, a famous pilgrimage site. <clears throat> the end to their, their story is kind of tragic uh, because um, three of them die within a few weeks of each other and uh, the mother's left to kind of hold the, the grief of the, the family. Um, you know, this happens with dogs a lot too, doesn't it? You know, or animals or um, people too. One person dies and the grief kills the next person closest to them pretty quickly. And I, and I like that detail in the story because I think it illustrates their commitment to each other and the way they were kind of all enmeshed in each other. And the other thing I like about this story is it's not just about an individual that's waking up. It's about a family that's waking up together. You know, um, the Pong's family, the, their teacher was a guy named Master Ma. If you ever study Zen uh, koans or you listen to my podcast, you'll know that I tell a lot of stories about Master Ma um, and um, Master Ma was very famous for changing the way this is a tangent but a nerd, a nerd moment is happening but, but Master Ma is very famous for changing the way Zen koans were taught where instead of giving a question to a student who would then take it into their meditation practice and then hopefully have a Satori enlightenment experience um, Master Ma would work closely with the student so that the two of them would go back and forth working on the koan together. So it was something that woke up the student within relationship. It's a really important detail. Because then when you go and read these stories, you hear that the detail in these stories is the way the awakening happens within relationship. And that was sort of Master Ma's gift to, to Zen, which is... Um, kind of moving out of this kind of individual awakening idea toward a sense of awakening as something that happens in relationship, always in relationship.
And this fall to the ground is what I call a non-dual activity. There is a lot of uh, bullshit around these days called non-dualism. Have you heard about this? No? Good. I'm glad it's not in Sweden yet. Um, this kind of like passive idea that there's this consciousness that fills everything and that you don't have to do anything. Everything is just pure consciousness. I'm not even going to get into the whole thing, but basically it turns students into cardboard. Maybe you know people like this. Vegan cardboard. Okay. I'm sure none of them are here. Um, the spirit of bodhisattva activity is to see that, that non-dual activity is always activity. It's wholehearted activity. When your whole heart is in activity, there's no separate self that the activity is happening to. One's whole heart is in the activity. And you don't know it's happening when it's happening, because if you knew it was happening when it's happening, it wouldn't be non-dual activity. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, so, so non-duality is not like a philosophical position. My theory about this is that there isn't anything called non-duality. It was just a term created by the dualists in order to set up opposing schools. But anyways. But rather, when you hear the term non-dual, it refers to wholehearted. Your whole heart is in an activity so that you're so intimate with what's happening that it's not happening to you. It's not happening to you. And practice is the ability to sustain that, not just in blissful states, but to sustain that wholehearted activity through all kinds of different moods, different forms of communication, different movement vocabularies in your body, but to sustain wholehearted activity. That's bodhisattva practice. Does that make sense? So let's imagine that we can have intimacy in every situation and that it's the base of practice. Or maybe it's the base of everything. That we have faith, and this is, this is how I would define yoga practice, is that we have faith or confidence that the base of reality is intimacy. But that it's covered over by fear, unprocessed grief, mistrust, woundedness, whatever. Right? Too much pride, conceit, greed, and so on. But, but our practice is to uncover this basic uh, intimacy that's already inherent in every situation. It's already there in every situation. The point is that enlightenment and intimacy are synonymous. Enlightenment and intimacy are exactly the same thing. Non-duality and wholehearted activity are exactly the same thing. They're interchangeable. And that intimacy is not something you try and pull out of a situation or try and create in a situation. It's just there. 
it's just there. If you try and pull it out, you'll lose it. Right. Have you ever had this, like, do you have Valentine's Day yet? Yes. <laughs> okay, so on Valentine's Day, have you ever been, like, on a Valentine's date? And it's a lot of pressure, you know? You have to, like, get a card, and you know where the evening's headed, and you might not be in the mood, you know? And, like, you really don't want to get a reservation. You have reservations about the reservation. And... Um, how can one just be intimate with uh, what's happening without covering it over with, oh, and it has to be about this other thing. So that's a good practice for all of us. Huh? Birthdays and holidays, and where we're trying to fake celebrating. So the first way of recovering this uh, deep connection that I'm talking about <clears throat> is by not abandoning the situation of the present moment. Something's arising, don't abandon it. Don't separate from it, don't separate from yourself. And that's actually going to be the theme of our entire weekend together, which is not separating from yourself. not separating from yourself. And how we can turn that into from a philosophy or into a momentary insight into something that's really sustained in time. Not separating from your experience. Usually when we encounter someone who's having trouble or if we're having trouble, we have so many ideas that constellate around them or around us. This practice of not separating is about just being vulnerable to the situation, being open to the situation. And as the situation changes, to be able to track it and feel it and open to it and not hold on to it either. So, let me sum up so far. What is the work of a bodhisattva? If somebody falls to the ground, we fall with them. If kids need your attention and you're preoccupied, give them your attention. If your body is speaking to you, listen. If you don't listen, it will yell at you. When your body is yelling at you, listen. If you don't listen, it will punch you and kick you from the inside. Have you felt this before? So please <laughs> listen. If you find that there are conversations that trigger you, figure out what you need to do in order to meet uh, those conversations. Knowing that when you really meet the other, there is no other anymore. When Ling Zhao threw herself to the ground, <clears throat> it's not just profound because she didn't hesitate. It's profound because it's funny. It's comic. Maybe none of you are laughing. None of you think this is funny, but picture the situation. It's funny. 
her, her dad falls down and she throws herself to the ground and he's a bit embarrassed by the situation. And also, uh, so many of us, our hearts have so much plaque that we're not able to just fall to the ground like that. For others. So let me tell you a story about uh, Nadia. I learned this story while I, while I was in Greece uh, recently. This summer, uh, Nadia was forced to flee her native country of Iraq when she was four months pregnant. She sought relative safety across the border in uh, Syria. Can you imagine how desperate somebody must be at four months pregnant to go to Syria as a place of refuge? So in Nadia's case, she was driven to Syria by the sight of a car full of Yazidi girls like her uh, being burned alive. And she realized this was the fate for herself and for her family. So she fled. After a desperate spell in Syria, Nadia made the journey to Greece in an unseaworthy leaking boat until she was nine months pregnant. Her unborn child died on the journey because of malnutrition and uh, stress. And on her arrival in Greece, she was given a fast, a cesarean. And she says, they didn't even let me see my baby. They took him away and buried him in a mass grave with many other babies. I cried and cried for days, and I still can't even visit my son's grave. The current refugee crisis is one of the gravest humanitarian situations any of us have seen in our lifetime. The crisis in countries like Sweden is very controversial. Calls to offer added protection to refugees are increasingly met with opposition. So I'm not going to get into those details here. But what I will say is that if you look at the media's portrayal of refugees, the objectification, the dehumanization, it's a history that's repeating itself. It's the same history that sent my own ancestors fleeing from Poland uh, to Canada. If you have a strong bias about another culture or another group of people, it means you don't understand that group of people. Or you don't understand that culture. We all here in countries like this, and in Canada also, need to accept a realistic share of refugees that's commensurate to the wealth and the privilege 
of the places that we're living in right now. Our lifestyle, all of us, our lifestyle has created climate change. In Syria, 1.5 million people were displaced before the civil war because of drought. Why was there drought? Because of changes in the climate. Why is there climate change? Because of industry, mostly from northern countries. And the effect of that industry is being seen in all the areas that we can map out where we're, you know, droning and so on. To not see the relationship uh, between drought and civil war is to really miss something in this situation. And to not see the connection between an extraction-based economy and fossil fuels and refugees is also to really miss something. So when we see this situation with people like Nadia, and I, I know many of us have heard many, many stories, and our hearts have been broken, um, I really encourage you to get back to the human realm and to remember that these are all people like you and me who want families or have families or have lost people close to us, who just want safety, they want to be free from danger, they want peace. So part of the aspiration of bodhisattvas is to have a heart that can be flexible enough, that it can be stretched beyond what it knows already. Fine, you can have flexible hamstrings. It's really, really important. <laughs> and it's okay uh, if you have stiff shoulders, they'll loosen up and they'll become more flexible. But if you have a worldview that is intolerant, or you feel a strong bias in you, around other cultures, especially as they start to enter your own culture. It's really important to bring in our bodhisattva practice. I'm not saying to let go of your worldview. I'm just saying to notice when it gets and feels constricted. All of us practice mindfulness of our body. That's what we're doing on our rectangular mats. So if you're practicing mindfulness of the body, you can feel in your body where you're contracting. You can feel in your heart where you're contracting. You can feel how you let go, and you can feel where you pull back again. It's the same with the Pung family. You can picture them, can't you, at the market with their homemade bamboo utensils? Can you see their chopsticks? Can you see their sandals? Can you imagine their hair or their lack of it? Sometimes your yogi circle is very, very small. Your work is serving your sore throat or your headache or needing to pay way more attention 
to your digestion. And maybe you can't do fika <laughs> every day. Or maybe your circle is to focus on having less social interaction and a little more time for solitude, a little more time in the day to have a rhythm of being alone and the patience of, uh, of moving through boredom or moving through anxiousness so you can feel what it's like to just be quiet in yourself. Other times, the circle of the care is much bigger. Sitting with other people who are ill, catching someone who's falling, breaking something to help other people, like a rule or a code, or just breaking an ideal in ourselves so that we can really help another person. Or just not cooperating with a system that crushes creativity. Sometimes I feel like our education system and our uh, business systems, they, they're kind of turning into the same thing. They, they crush uh, creative space, creative time. In my own life, I used to be more out of a get-out-on-the-streets kind of activist, you know. And now I feel uh, more, um, I think through practice, I feel more attuned to issues around mental health. And it's not as um, get out on your streets. It's a little bit more individual and a little more intimate. If you tune into people's mental health, uh, you can see it in people's faces all day. So the point of me telling you this is not that you should do what I'm doing or something, because you have to do what you have to do. But the point is, is that bodhisattva practice has a rhythm, and it changes during the day, changes during the week. What you practice on Monday might not be what you practice on Wednesday. What you've been doing for the last seven years may not be what you're going to do next year. But if our training is to be responsive, if our training is to cultivate compassion by reducing our own reactivity, then a bodhisattva practice is possible for all of us. It's possible for all of us. And I can be your coach <laughs> for two more days and run you through the drills. so that you can recognize um, awakening, or what we call Buddha. Because the Buddha's mind is not like the Buddha who's sitting on an altar. When your reactivity is reduced, and you're wholeheartedly in activity, that's the mind of the Buddha. That's the Buddha's mind. The Buddha's mind that was awake in the story we tell about the Buddha's awakening is your mind when you're wholeheartedly in activity. That's your mind. 
and we call that Dharma transmission. You receive the transmission of the Buddha's mind, not from a Buddha or from a teacher or from a guru. You receive it from the power of the present moment when you're wholeheartedly, actively, non-statically, kinetically involved in what's happening right now. And you don't get it through a practice. It doesn't come through meditation. It doesn't come through pranayama. It doesn't come through headstands. All those practices are training in different ways this body that can receive the present moment. But the present moment is not dependent on those practices. You see? The practices are just training your heart so that you can be there. And the best thing about these practices is they don't involve producing anything or consuming anything, which is why people don't know what to do with them, because you don't get anywhere. You don't get anywhere. This is true. You don't get anywhere. I mean, nowadays we tell people, you're going to have less stress. And there's so many studies to prove it. You're going to have way less stress and everything, you know, will be better in your communication style and so on. But really, you don't get anything. Because when we're talking about bodhisattva activity, there isn't a you that can get anything. If there's a you that's getting anything, that's not wholehearted activity. That's me that wants to get something out of the activity. So that you can't actually even practice yoga. <laughs> isn't that funny? <laughs> This should all be clearly written on your website for the studio. <laughs> you can't practice yoga here. With the U in italics. Like, you can't practice yoga. So. The last thing I'll, I'll say is that um, this story is not just about um, the ideal of a bodhisattva, which is kind of imaginative ideal. It's also to do with understanding karma, which is that uh, everything that you do uh, has an effect. Everything you do. And there's some times in your life where you do things that affect thousands and thousands of people. And you can't even know how many people are affected by something you might do. And there are times where you try to do something to affect thousands of people and you only get two likes. <laughs> I like to tell this story, but I have a friend who won a Grammy Award this year. And I said, so, how are things changed? How have things changed? Like, what's it like? And he's like, nothing's changed. The phone's not even ringing. <laughs> <laughs> but everything that you do has a consequence. And this is called karma. Everything you do has an echo. <clears throat> And you can't control the consequence. You can't control the echo. 
Have you ever tried riding your bicycle under a bridge and echoing? Has anybody, do you have the, can you do this and, yeah, okay. Yeah, do you know the bridge? Yeah, okay. And you try echoing. Can you control the echo? To a certain degree, but not completely. But what you can have a lot of control over is the volitional action of singing, is the intention of sending your voice out into the world. It's the same with parenting. When you're with a kid, you can't control what that kid is going to turn into, but you can really control the intention of your interactions with those kids. School teachers know this better than parents, actually. How you are in the classroom is more important than what you teach. And this is called karma. And the whole idea of a bodhisattva practice rests on this theory of karma, which is that everything you do has an echo. Everything you do has an echo. So, let me end with um, two quotes. The first is uh, from Shantideva in his text, the Bodhisattva Charyavatara, uh, the guide to the uh, Bodhisattva's way of life. And uh, he, he says, may I be a protector to those without protection. This is like, I think if there was a wealthy person in here, and you wanted to take out an ad in the newspaper, like, a, you know, people do these full, do they do that here? Full page ad. This is what I would put on the ad. Like on the front page, actually. This is, if I could, if I had the money, I would do a full page ad with this. May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring a better shore. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May I be the doctor and the medicine. May I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. Isn't that beautiful? Until every single one is healed. All beings. All beings. Mr. Pang and his daughter were selling bamboo baskets. Coming down off a bridge with his arms full, Mr. Pang stumbled and fell. When his grown-up daughter saw this, she ran up and threw herself to the ground. What are you doing? cried Mr. Pang. I saw you fall, so I'm helping. Here's your next tattoo. <laughs> I saw you fall, so I'm helping. Or you could even slim it down a little bit, which is, uh, I saw you fall. <laughs> like just acknowledging that. I saw you fall. Not this. I saw you fall. I don't know what to do. So I'm offering myself.
So thank you for listening. Um, what I'd like to do is um, maybe spend just a little bit of time processing this together and then having a question and answer or discussion period. Usually we have a break, everyone goes out for a smoke, then we come back, we have a discussion together, and like I give good answers or something. Um, but tonight I, I would rather do something different, which is that um, what I'd like you to do is um, I, I want you to um, make a group of three. Okay. So you introverts who are already freaking out, uh, don't worry. Um, so ma make a group of three, and, and I would like you to just talk together about a specific theme. And here's the theme. How have you fallen down in your life? Physically or otherwise, how have you fallen down? Um, how was it for you? And did you have any opinions about yourself? Do you know what I mean by that? It's like usually you fall down, and then when you are down in the dumps, it's like, I am such a... Yeah. So what I want you to do is just think about a time where you've fallen down, just share it, and then also share, what was your opinion of yourself when you fell down? And that's the first thing I want you to, to talk about. Does that sound reasonable to talk about? So um, let's make a group of three, and let's, uh, let's jump in. Oh, and don't forget to introduce yourself to your, your new friends. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.